Ladies and gentlemen, aloha and welcome back to Conservation Voices for the Primate Guest. I'm your host, Cecile Sarabian, and this podcast is the number 49 in our series. At the beginning of September was held the biggest conservation congress in the world, the IUCN World Conservation Congress. This edition, entitled Planet at the Crossroads, was hosted in Honolulu, Hawaii, at the convention center. So let's go back in time with a foretaste of some of our IUCN encounters. What is this? Is this a breathalyzer? <laughs> You're eating chocolates, but that's fine. Um, so first, just uh, name, nationality, affiliation, position. Affiliation, position. Okay. I'm Sheldon Planovich from the U.S. I work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I'm the Coastal Program Coordinator. I'm Michelle Bogardis. I'm from the U.S. I also work for Fish and Wildlife Service, and I'm a team leader for all the biologists in our office that work on Maui Nui and Hawaii Island issues. Favorite place on Earth? Dude, you're just like straight in on that. Nihoa Island and Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument, hands down. Um, Haleakala National Park on the island of Maui. Favorite species or the trapdoor spider, which is a giant spider endemic to the island of Nihoa. Very friendly and furry. <laughs> the Hawaiian petrel, which is a seabird that is endemic to the main Hawaiian islands and breeds on the islands of uh, Hawaii, Maui, Lanai, and Kauai. Great. You can join. You can come you should join in. My favorite um, is a forest bird species called the Aniani Ao. It's found only on the island of Kauai. It's, I think it's all of Hawaii's littlest songbird. It weighs only as much as four pennies or ten paper clips. If you take that into your hand, that's how little it is. It's as bright yellow as a lemon drop flittering through the trees. Oh, you guys. <laughs> and it sounds like a, like a squeaky wheel, kind of. Like a, yeah. yeah. Love it. Aniani Ao. Aniani Ao. Favorite conservationist. Sorry. Oh, oh God, she's like straight in on it. I like E.O. Wilson. I like Jane Goodall. I like, yeah, I like Jane Goodall, too. <laughs> I like all of the above, but yeah. my favorite is Sheldon Plantevich. Ah. <laughs> yes. I like Sheila Conant for everything oh, she's yeah. done for Hawaii's forest birds. That's a good one. Yeah. The most urgent place or species to preserve. Oh, they're all in Kauai. <laughs> oh, my God. The whole world, like just functioning ecosystems throughout the entire world, that's the most urgent. I think that's the problem is that we can't just pick a single place, otherwise we lose all sorts of biodiversity. So it's yeah. not just picking a place, it's picking ecosystems that we have an opportunity to do good work in. So what is your, you guys, your sustainability tips? Something you do on a routine or daily basis that you think has a positive or at least not a negative impact on the environment? I drink bird-friendly coffee. <laughs> I never use disposable plastic things, yeah. and I, like, shame everyone around me when they do. <laughs> lights. I hate lights. So artificial lighting, off. There are no lights on our house. There are blinds on our windows. Um, I encourage all of our neighbors to do the same thing because you have no idea the impact of artificial light on ecosystems, Seabirds, even in urban areas. Turtles. We hang all our clothes to dry, so we're not using the dryer and all the electricity that goes in that. You're such a hippie. Best <laughs> <laughs> part of IUCN World Conservation Congress 2016. You! <laughs> <laughs> Just the general good energy and good vibe surrounded by a bunch of people who care about the world and who want to make the world a better place. 
getting people here that I think knew our message before but had to be here to be convinced. Um, I think you know most of us are already all all on the same page so it's just sharing ideas but when we get those few people here that maybe aren't quite as convinced and then we change their minds up by being here with so much good energy oh my goodness that's that's, that's true that's cool I think there's been a lot of exposure to the Hawaiian public about conservation issues because the Hawaiian press is reporting on this news on a regular basis more way more regularly than usual and to all sorts of outlets yeah. who people who wouldn't be hearing about it so the, the, I like that the repercussions go far and way far beyond the walls of the conference. I agree. Yeah. So that's a taste of how our mini-interviews were conducted for this introductory podcast, because there will be much more to come. And actually, we interviewed much more delegates from this Congress, because it gathered more than 10,000 participants from 192 countries around the world. So to help me out, I'm joined here in the studio by the Primate guest host, Dr. Andrew McIntosh. Hey, everybody. Good to be here. And Seal, so you've been jet-setting all over the world for these different conferences. We just came back from the International Primatological Society and American Society for Primatologists uh, joint meeting. And you went off to Hawaii now for this thing. Yes, after the IPS-ASP meetings, well, I, I had a crochet by California. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to visit UC Davis. And then I went to this massive Congress, the IUCN World Conservation Congress, because I thought that's a very good opportunity. It's held only once every four years. And this time was in Hawaii. I knew I would be in the US. Yeah, it was great timing and definitely something that yeah, from Kyoto University, our program's really uh, happy to see our students going out to things like this. I'm very grateful uh, actually to the leading graduate program, PWS, Primatology and Wildlife Science for yeah. supporting this trip. That's awesome. Among what came out of this Congress, like some, some big uh, decisions were taken. Mm -hmm. and one of which is the creation of the largest uh, protected area in the world. Oh, which wow. is the Papa Hanao Mokuekea Marine National Monument expansion. Because actually it was a Marine National Monument before, mm -hmm. a protected area. But Obama, just at the launch of the Congress, decided to quadruple the size mm -hmm. of uh, this protected area, which mm -hmm. makes it the largest marine reserve on Earth. That must be a really symbolic um, thing as well for having the conference in Hawaii and having Obama's involvement as well. Yeah, exactly. Among other uh, very famous and contentious actions <laughs> or motions that have been proposed at the Congress, one of which was the called Motion 007. Mm -hmm. It was almost like Mission Impossible, mm -hmm. <laughs> as this motion Nothing's proposed... impossible for 007. <laughs> yeah, so that's why maybe it passed. Um, <laughs> The motion was uh, a closure of all domestic ivory markets. Mm -hmm. Remember when that came out, you were posting about it as well. Um, yeah, because I was in the room. Yeah, yeah, the most contentious because talks went on the first day after midnight. Oh, Some wow. delegates walked out of the room <laughs> and they decided to, to close the, the discussion the next day. Finally, the motion was approved. So. Mm -hmm. And so what was the, I guess some of the people who walked out were delegates from, from Japan, Japan and uh, South Africa, I believe it yeah. was. And Namibia was and also Namibia. an opponent okay. of this ban. Right. So the next day, they came back with uh, about 20 amendments to mm -hmm. propose, trying to have exceptions in this uh, 
global ban. Mm -hmm. So, well, basically they wanted to avoid uh, the ban, saying mainly that uh, their market was very well regulated. Mm -hmm. So they didn't feel concerned as for Japan, for mm -hmm. example. Or Namibia or South Africa say that their population of um, Africa savannah elephants were rising on the rise. Mm -hmm. So they don't see why... Um, they should be included in this mm -hmm. in, in this ban and they say that same like their market is very well regulated mm -hmm. but we all know that yeah if you allow it in one spot then that's an easy way to smuggle ivory as well mm -hmm. i i know that japan is one of the largest markets in the world if not the largest largest domestic market in the world for for ivory um just behind china yes so and that was going to be my question is were china involved in the talks there as well yeah so and china so position itself uh, along with the us uh, along with some European countries, including France, that uh, didn't position themselves so far, but they all agreed to take a move and to go towards um, banning their mm -hmm. domestic market. So this was a big move, particularly mm -hmm. from the largest uh, consuming country. So then if others don't follow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's always problematic. But we, we will have a specific podcast on this issue uh, very soon. So watch out. Okay. Yeah. So we'll look forward to that. And I, I uh, just to maybe to bring some of the listeners to a historical podcast here, we also have a, a podcast interview with um, Dr. Tomaki Nishihara from a few years ago, who is also, he worked for the Wildlife Conservation Society and has done a lot of work uh, within Japan as well, trying to protect the forest elephants because people don't really, are not really so aware on the ground here. And that's one of the reasons why um, the consumption is so high. I think people just aren't getting the message that they need to get. So I hope this, this can help in that regard. Right. So among other motions that have been proposed at this uh, Congress was the motion 009, which is the ban of uh, captive breeding facilities for hunting lions in South Africa. Oh, right. Yeah. Hunting lions has been kind of big in the news this past year. Yeah, this topic will also be part of a coming podcast because uh, we had the chance to be able to interview an activist in this regard, Dr. Andrew Venter. Mm -hmm. He's the CEO of Wildlands and he's also the executive producer of a documentary depicting this issue called Blood Lions. And he also initiated a campaign called Youth for Lions, where uh, youth people of South Africa are taking position on this issue mm -hmm. and letting the government know that they don't want this to happen mm -hmm. in their country. Yeah. And as we are now the 3rd of October, the CITES meeting or the COP17, the convention of the party, which is taking place in Johannesburg currently, is touching to its end. And there has been like decisions taken on those motions. Right. One of the role of CITES is to, for example, uplist or upgrade the protection level of the species by putting them in different appendices. Mm -hmm. um, so for elephants, uh, for example, if we wanted this motion of uh, banning the trade of ivory, then that means, for example, putting all elephant species into Appendix 1, right. which they aren't currently. Uh, there are still the populations of Botswana, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa that are listed in Appendix 2. Right, the one where the support for banning the domestic trade is actually uh, the least or the most opposed. Right. And no later than yesterday, October the 4th, the proposal to uplist all African elephant species did not obtain the two-third majorities required from the parties, which means 
all African elephants still do not obtain the strictest possible protection. And similarly, the lions were not uplisted into Appendix 1, okay. which means they didn't obtain the strictest um, protection possible. Right. Which means that the trade of lion bones, lion tails, and other used for traditional Chinese medicine will still be allowed. Right. But the good news are that the Barbary macaques, along with the African grey parrots and the pangolins, which is the, the most trafficked species in front of tigers or elephants, and we might forget about them, but they obtained the uh, Appendix 1 listing. So. Yeah, I think it really goes to show um, just the, the plight right now for this group of species. Um, and again, pangolins have been in the news a lot recently too over the past six months or a year. Um, so it's really nice to see uh, you know, the world taking action on this one for sure. Yeah. Finally, yes. <laughs> Joining the uh, charismatic m megafauna, <laughs> the pangolin. Right. So, yeah, beside all those motions and, and decisions that were taken at the Congress, um, it was also very nice to see like thousands of those delegates from all around the world yeah, coming 10, from... 10,000 is an incredible number. Yeah, the biggest Congress I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And it was so cool to see them, like, most in Hawaiian shirts and, like, their traditional <laughs> outfits. Soaking in the culture. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. And I, I remember at the, I think it was the opening ceremony. So they couldn't fit everybody in the same room. Mm -hmm. So we were dispatched in, in different rooms with, like, uh, a screen. Sure. Um, and one of the chair uh, proposed the participants to hug each other so like to hug your neighbor <laughs> okay from each side <laughs> traditional hawaiian greeting i don't know i thought maybe like everyone will go with his or her home greeting mm -hmm. so i went over my neighbors and, and i i thought i'm gonna give a hug and i i don't know why but i'm sure they were not <laughs> french but they both kiss me on each cheeks and I was like wow <laughs> that's not what I was expecting <laughs> but it's just for the anecdote so I did not try to hug all the participants but instead I tried to know who they are with the recorder Bradley Christopher Duval, American from Honolulu, Hawaii, volunteer. Salman of Ruslan, Azerbaijan, Minister of Ecology and Natural Resources. Denise Okuyama, Peru, South America, guest. Ian Lifshitz, Indonesia, Sustainability Director for Asia Pulp and Paper. Zaran of South Korea, International Convention Center, Jeju. Daru Busu, Ghana in West Africa, Deputy National Director for Arusha Ghana. Manita Vergis, India, Keystone Foundation. Al, Hawaii, State Department of Public Safety. Uh, Wulan, Indonesia, uh, WCS Indonesia Program, Species Conservation uh, Specialist. Seth Borskmeyer, American, Director of Global Ocean Legacy with the Pew Charitable Trusts. Matsushima, uh, Japan. Uh, same the Dion Campaign Center. Kim Harrison, Oahu, Lighthawk. Uh, volunteer. Jan Sarnaik, India, the Applied Environmental Research Foundation. Mohamed Georges Sibassou, Secretary Executive de l'Initiative de Collaboration Transfrontalière Grand Virunga, donc entre la RDC, le Rwanda et l'Ouganda. Basia Kigali. Patrick, Suisse. Ayusu, software engineer. Angel Kirkup, American, member of the public. I live here in Honolulu, so I just came to look at the exhibits. All right. In addition to those delegates, we were so lucky to be able to hear from the legacy of those three giant conservationists, which are Dr. Sylvia Earle, 
Dr. E.O. Wilson and Dr. Jane Goodall. Mm -hmm. three, three names you might have heard of. <laughs> and surprisingly or not, uh, I don't know, they were the, the three and the only three biologists turned activists that got complete standing ovation from, mm -hmm. from, the, from the room of like thousands of people. Right. I mean, it almost seems like it would be obvious, but <laughs> given the stature of those people and, and I think the passion with which they approach the, the subject matter as well. And as you say, maybe it has something to do with their origins as biologists and having that connection to nature from the beginning. Right, which yeah, show their, their power to, to inspire people, I think. Mm -hmm. Even conservationists themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, but as we are also biologists, um, and as those people have been able to explore different places uh, and species through, through their work and their passion, mm -hmm. uh, my first question to the delegates was a very simple one. What's your favorite place on Earth? Mm. So I'm asking you. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, it's, it's um, I, I want to say it's easy. It's not that easy, but I have an answer that I have to give now that I've actually been there once. And, uh, and I think for many reasons it becomes apparent, especially in the context of a podcast on conservation. Um, but Antarctica, um, I was really lucky to have the chance a few years ago, 2013-14 summer campaign, to visit uh, as part of the French polar mission there. We were doing some research on Adelie penguins. And of course, going up to that moment, I was reading all of the historical literature, not all, but a good proportion of the historical literature, the Shackletons, the Scott Amundsen stuff, um, all those crazy adventures that people had, um, Bird, and getting really excited about it. Of course, my mission was in the year 2013, so a little bit less dramatic than that. But I, I think it's impossible to arrive at a place like that and not feel incredibly passionate and inspired immediately um, just with how different the place is how immense the problems are facing the planet and um, how a place like that really just fast forwards everything in your mind because that's one of the two places in the world where and you know the other being the polar uh, environment where the things that we start to see changing the world happen first and and so that and, and also the way that the animals live down there really is um, tooth and claw kind of thing where fitness um, you know, in reproduction and, you know, being the main components of conservation are just right immediately apparent um, for those animals. So it's easy to see how one little stepped on bug in Homer Simpson's visit to the past can really have immense changes in the future. But Antarctica. Wow. <laughs> and you? Me, um, I would have to split, I think, between two places. Joker. Um, no more jokers. <laughs> The first one would be just, I guess, very close to my heart, um, which is the garden of my aunt <laughs> in Normandy, mm -hmm. um, in northwest part of France. A garden where I grew up, and every time I come back to France, yeah, I feel I need to visit. It's the garden where I started to play outside, you know, and to to play with the dog of my aunt, which was my best friend, I guess, but by the time. So I don't know, we created little, um, invented little stories to explore <laughs> <laughs> the surrounding of this garden and, and everything. So is it, does it still exist? Yeah, it still exists. Pristine form. Yeah. Well, the dog is not here anymore, unfortunately, but, <laughs> but the garden is still there. Sure. Yeah. Good. Uh, so this is one. And the other one is also 
I don't know, specific places to me. Uh, it's a small village in north of Madagascar called Antsoa. That was my first trip, I think, to Africa, mm-hmm. to Madagascar. And I was welcomed in this village as a, I don't know, a girl traveling alone. And to make things easier, the chief of the village, uh, which was half from Yemen and half from Madagascar, said I was his daughter. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was very funny to see that no people were questioning this at all. Right. I've never seen this girl for 20 years, but then that was it. I was his daughter. <laughs> and so everybody welcomed me and I, I just had so great moment there. It was just so, I don't know, so emotional. So I'm, I'm very attached to it's those It's amazing to places. see, you know, it doesn't really matter where you are on the planet, just that connection with people. Exactly. And you don't know where it comes from yeah. or why it arises in some cases and not others, but it just can really, really be touching. Yeah, so, well, that's our take, but mm-hmm. uh, let's hear about those delegates now. My motherland, it's, it's near near capital of Azerbaijan, near Baku, uh, not so far from Baku. It's the name of my region is Salyan. Oh, man, that's impossible. Baja, California. Sumatra Island. Beautiful, rich landscapes, animals, wildlife. It's a stunning location. Guatemala. Las Vegas. Oh, Shemwa? Congo, <laughs> Congo, Brazil. Home. I visited Ethiopia once. I love that country. The culture, the people, everything about that country is nice, and the diversity across the north and south. Yeah. Desert of Peru. But I like Okinawa, Iran, uh, best. I have so many. I'm new to Hawaii, and so I'm discovering these islands, and they're so beautiful. It might reach my number one pretty soon. Yosemite National Park. That's going to be hard. Favorite place? Oh, what is it? <laughs> ah, mm, I don't know. There's so many places. Probably Gunung Gede, Bulgur, the first mountain I ever climbed. So Probably the beach, a beach. have many favorite beaches, but probably too many to name. My home. <laughs> This is the best weather in the world, Honolulu, Hawaii. There's no place better. I flew all around the world for free, and by far, this is the best place in the world to live. So we had some really enthusiastic Hawaii supporters here. So, Cecile, what was your verdict? What was your take on That was the first time you were in Hawaii? Yes, that was my first time in Hawaii. And unfortunately, only in Oahu. It's different than what I thought or Mm -hmm. what I expected. I was expecting something maybe a bit cliche and Mm -hmm. maybe a bit more developed. But it happened to be... I don't know, a very laid back, different place. Uh, but the culture and then the people were amazing. And I love this yeah, very laid back attitude. And you would just see people in the streets in Honolulu just walking um, with their <laughs> swimsuits and uh, surfboards uh, <laughs> sure. in, in their Wait, hands. And that's not cliche? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's, it's a bit, but I, I don't know. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, sounds great. And I don't know, it's part of the yeah, part of the spirit as well. Jumping from a favorite place to a favorite species or organism. Sometimes those two are intimately linked. Yeah. As we, we saw, just described. <laughs> we we saw that also um, in our last podcast we did with the primatologists. Yeah, right. That often the study the species they study is is really what drives their affinity yeah. to certain places or Yeah, where they study them, yeah, exactly. So what would be your, your answer to that? Favorite species or favorite organism? Species. Um, 
Guys, yeah, it's really hard. I ever ever since I was really small, um, and my mom constantly tells me this story. I would be able to spend hours and hours with my plastic animals, and they could be <laughs> farm animals, or they could be um, forest animals, or whatever. But I I spent a lot of time with them. Um, growing up over the years, I have become kind of a primatologist, and as I just mentioned, um, branching off into seabird uh, research as well. I have to say that the Adelie penguin is definitely one of the most delightful animals to, to observe in its natural habitat. Uh, ridiculous animals, beautiful at the same. <laughs> On land and in water is so different. An animal that can be so, have such a difference in its degree of grace, mm-hmm. <laughs> say, on land versus in the ocean. Um, but that's really spectacular. And I, I also, um, as somebody who studies ecology of parasites, I think that that's another group of animals that kind of has a bad rap. Obviously, should have for many reasons, but there's also really cool things we can learn from the lowly worm, uh, not in the ground, but in the gut. And I think maybe one thing that people don't necessarily think about so often is even in the context of conservation, um, understanding the diversity of parasites in an ecosystem can really take us a long way into understanding the health of that ecosystem in itself as well. And so in some cases, we'd like to see a healthy diversity of those types of organisms as an indication of kind of a healthy functioning of, you know, just life in general. Um, so I got to I got to give a shout out to the worm. All right. And how about you? Like my first answer would be linked also to one of my favorite places, Madagascar, but not only. And I would say chameleons. Oh, yeah. Um, I just think they are so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure they are so much understood yet as well. Like their physiology and their ability to, to just change their camouflage all the time. Because they are rolling eyes. So. Yeah. And I, since Madagascar, I, I got a fascination for this species. When I was in, in West Africa, in Ghana, doing my master's research on black and white colorless monkeys, some local village kids tried to sell me a chameleon. Oh, no <laughs> way. <laughs> of course. Okay. It's unfortunate. You, I didn't buy it. Great. You preferred your plastic um, animal toys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I couldn't arrange it in the way that I wanted. So. And then uh, more recently, um, I think the naked mole rats, I just thought that oh, would yeah. be so cool to study them. <laughs> and this came out actually at Lincoln Park Zoo, so yeah. not in their natural habitat, but they have a few. Mm-hmm. I just watched them for, for like an hour or so, and I was thinking of like, hmm, the different kind of infection risk avoidance experiments I could do with them. <laughs> well, and, you know, naked mole rats also bring you one step closer to E.O. Wilson as well, because as one of the, you know, the early um, or most illustrious researchers focusing on the social insects, the eusocial insects, the naked mole rat happens to be one of the only mammals, which also is eusocial. Right. But I'm not sure E.O. Wilson can, can be a postdoc advisor now. Well, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> beside our response, let's hear what others have to say. Uh, probably anything in the ocean, any kind of uh, fish, mammal, uh, coral, seaweed, anything of that, anything to do with the ocean. Vicuñas in Peru. Tiger, grizzly bear. Lysan albatross. I, li- I like gazelles. Also, other species like. Um, I, I, I don't know. I... That's a tough one, but I love trees. It's 
Sumatran elephant, the wild elephant. We actually have one out there, but you can't see that. <laughs> it's stunning, beautiful Sumatran wild elephants. Hornbills. Prefer Liguri. Does dog count? Dark dog? Okay. Dog. Dion. <laughs> so my first love is Sumatran rhinos. But now my new love is uh, manta ray. In Hawaiian, it's called the kolea bird. It's a Pacific golden plover. It migrates from Alaska to Hawaii. When it gets cold in Alaska, it comes to Hawaii. And it's just an amazing bird because it travels so many miles, risks its life to fly over the Pacific Ocean to also come to the best place in the world. That's a good question. I've always liked kind of the big cats, cougars and things like that. Elephants, not because I'm African or coming from Ghana, but I think because of also, when you take the elephant as a, an iconic species, you end up taking care of not only the elephant, but every other thing that is within the environment of the elephant. So we've heard a lot here about megafauna species, and less about like less charismatic or emblematic species. Right, like my parasites. And, you know, I think it's always, it's, it's not always important, but it might be interesting to mention for people who have not seen it, like the Ugliest Animal Awards, because that started as kind of a tongue-in-cheek way to think about conservation as well for some of the less charismatic animals out there, like the blobfish. Mm -hmm. uh, your naked mole rat is also <laughs> on the list. Um, and, the, you know, things like the proboscis monkey, which, sure, it has a big nose, but that's a beautiful animal. Well, but Come I would on. say the same for the naked morons. <laughs> like sometimes the most ugly or, I don't know, it makes them super cute as well. Very impressive <laughs> anyways. Um, and, you know, we a colleague here, uh, Julie, mentioned that her, her tick would have been for the tardigrade, which is also a really cool right. animal. Radiation yeah. resistant, desiccation resistant, basically death proof thing yeah. that we've sent into space successfully and retrieved. So all kinds of really amazing things out there. Right. But unfortunately for them, they don't have, I don't know, I have the feeling they don't have the same chance as those uh, very charismatic mm -hmm. uh, mammal, most often species, mm -hmm. who have sometimes a protector mm -hmm. or uh, an angel <laughs> just taking care of their conservation mm -hmm. and raising awareness of the public, such as we know for um, chimpanzees, for example, with Jane Goodall. Right. Or um, elephants or tigers or all those, yeah very uh, iconic species yeah um, the panda and wwf <laughs> right <laughs> i mean you should point out that obviously the the whole idea of charismatic megafauna at least in principle is that protect the largest animals in an environment thereby mm -hmm, protecting mm -hmm. kind of the largest portion of the the ecosystem which would act as they, they act as umbrella species mm -hmm. but you know there's a, a lot of debate as to whether or not that actually does work for the majority of species so for, but that's for a different podcast I think. <laughs> right but so the transition here is from those uh, favorite species to favorite conservationists so yeah i'm going to start with you on this one <laughs> beside being still i think inspired by those um, conservationist giants who just dedicated their life or at least part of their life mm -hmm. uh, and career to conservation, such as Sylvia Earle, Jane Goodall, Hugh Wilson, who, by the way, are like respectively 82, 82, and 87 this year. Yeah. Which just makes me think, like, what the hell am I doing <laughs> <laughs> at 27, you know? <laughs> so it's very encouraging at the same time and, and challenging. So this still inspires us all, I think. Um, but beside them and 
also closer to my experience. Um, I think I would just name one person for now, who is Dr. Vahabzadeh, is like the father of ecology in Iran. Mm-hmm. He translated so many critical books of those people, for example, to, mm-hmm. to be able to spread their message to a, a part of the world that doesn't have necessary access to it. And he also recently initiated a big movement in Iran, the Nature School Movement, which is basically to be able to bring to the new generation a, a sense of what nature is and a, a sense of wilderness by putting them in a context where they can experience nature. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned earlier, that that's very critical, I think, mm-hmm. for child development. Mm-hmm. Well, so there, there has been studies on that. So, so you came on the scene in Iran with uh, Jane Goodall Roots and Shoes program, I guess, three, four years ago now. Right. And and so you, how how much have you seen um, just in that time, or was there already gaining momentum uh, for these types of initiatives there, or how much has changed in those four years? Back four years ago, um, to my knowledge, there were no nature school. The project I think was in place, but it mm-hmm. wasn't created. And after the first nature school uh, in in Iran. Then it started to grow like mushrooms. Yeah, no, it's really cool. It's, yeah. I mean, and those are the. I mean, obviously, that's a great example of a place that needs um, these kinds of things to be taking off. We talk about it, you know, from our desks or armchairs or whatever all the time. <laughs> but you know, the amount of the amount of impact I think just that we can have in our everyday lives is is a lot smaller than than those than people who are actually living in those kinds of environments. So it's good, it's great to hear. And I would like to add about those, um, this new generation of conservationists out there. I would like to add two more names, actually. <laughs> One of them is Naftali Honig, that we also had the opportunity to interview for the Primate Cast earlier, I think, last year. And he's an eco-activist working for law enforcement in Africa. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an aspect of conservation that is, uh, I mean, quite new, at least mm-hmm. in in the past decade and that's something that yeah wasn't there before so yeah i mean it absolutely looks like definitely one of the hardest the hardest the hardest parts of it so seeing things through on the ground right well it's for sure tough <laughs> but i think they are doing a yeah great job that uh, we should acknowledge more mm-hmm. and another young conservationist uh, that we also had the opportunity to interview for the primate cast uh, he's yufang gao uh, he's a Chinese young conservationist who is now, I think, taking his PhD at Yale University mm-hmm. in the US. Uh, but he also uh, dedicated his master thesis to the issue of ivory trade uh, mm-hmm. in China, Asia and Africa. And I think so the interview that you talked about with him being on was one of the student conferences in, in conservation science that you did. And that probably would have been the Australia. Yeah, this Brisbane. was in Brisbane, yeah. Australia. And yeah. so you visited last year, you went to three Four, yeah. three, three. <laughs> so <laughs> don't remember anymore. <laughs> but maybe it's worth mentioning those. Um, those are also, at least from your perspective, and they seem to be a great opportunity for young conservationists to get together and yeah, see what the beat yeah, is. Yeah, I, w- I would recommend them. Yeah, to any mm-hmm. any young um, conservationist out there. What about you? Well, yeah, mine's kind of simpler um, and less, I guess, less directly connected. I, I, like thinking about these plastic animals that I used to always play with at the same time, there's always um, <laughs> joined with watching amazing things on TV. And so I don't know if, you know, he's necessarily the first one. Okay. is necessarily 
I conservationist uh, mainly or firstly, um, but anyways, David Attenborough has been really inspirational for me uh, getting in, interested in, in nature and nature conservation, biology in general. Um, and I think probably for so many people, there are some of their first experiences with the most exotic places on the world were narrated by him. So, so I think that's pretty special. And uh, a little more directly related to conservation, as a Canadian, uh, all of my fellow Canadians will be familiar with the name David Suzuki, who um, has been in the Canadian, this is also in, related, in relation to broadcasting uh, and you know, developing public awareness and teaching people about nature and science um, through a TV program that's had been going forever, probably still is the nature of things um, with him as a host. And I think just, you know, those people like him who just kind of tirelessly devoted to getting word out, trying to inspire people, trying to engage people, um, just has a, a lot of uh, important influence in, you know, people like me. So, so those, those two, I think to start. And then of course, as you mentioned, there's all kinds of people out there who are doing things on the ground, which might be a different uh, answer altogether, but I'm going to stay away from that for now. Right. So let's hear about them. Um, I think I have uh, one man who is the board of trustees of my company. He's called Dr. Moses Sam. I think he mentored me when I was very young, going to school from undergraduate to studying conservation, all of that. Oh, difficult. <laughs> Jane Goodall. C.E.O. Wilson. Our governor of Jeju province because he has really vicious goal for um, for by 2030. So he would like our whole island to be carbon free. A guy that I look up to, his name is Peter Zinger, and he taught me about uh, veganism and how we need to be more plant-based. And I truly believe that if we have a plant-based mindset and we all understand uh, farming and biodiversity better, this world will be a better place and there will be less hunger issues in the world. I, I think in Azerbaijan we have such uh, good conservationists uh, from Soviet time. Also now we have some good professionals from our ministry. But how to say? I couldn't uh, say just uh, somebody who is uh, very best in this. Who is the best? It's a tough one too. Um, Jane Goodall. Um, gee, I think I have too many to name. There's just so many great people out there doing a good job. Um, I'm like, besides the ocean, I love music, so I like, I'm a big Jack Johnson fan. Scientifically, I love like Ulas Karand, as like tiger guru, like everybody look up at him. From like a new approach, I like the, this uh, TNC guy, I forgot his name. The TNC chief scientist, which I forgot now. <laughs> I don't have one, I like them all, I respect them all very much. Sylvia L, uh, Jane Goodall, mm. and many others that I don't know. <laughs> Our leader is Sedo Yutaka, uh, uh, SDCC leader, and famous Okina musician, and Jingon Conservator. Well, some of the indigenous elders that I have met in my journey, and uh, who uh, some of them are no more, but um, I learned science, but it's because of these indigenous um, people that um, I came to want to work on science. Uh, John Goodall. 
Okay, so just like our experience with our meetings with primatologists, Jane is definitely one of the most uh, spoken about here as well. Um, maybe not surprising when you think conservation, when you think activism, those things together, you, you probably do think Jane Goodall, and she's that much of a household name um, like almost nobody else. That was, that was funny. You would ask the question to those people, like, what's your favorite conservationist? And then they would start thinking, uh, and, um, Jane Goodall. <laughs> Did I pass the test? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But those famous conservationists, I think their work is also critical to be able to highlight places and species who need the most conservation mm -hmm. measures or actions to be taken. Mm -hmm. Which actually leads to my next question to the delegates, uh, which was, what's, to your opinion, the most urgent mm -hmm. place and all species yeah, to preserve? Sounds like a really hard question. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a tricky one. <laughs> I think so, yeah. What would be your answer? Um, God, I mean, I, I th there's a couple ways to think about the question. One is that, you know, in many cases there may be some places that you would think are in the most dire straits or the most dire conditions in terms of on a, you know, a very short time scale, you might see them disappear or the species disappear. Um, then the real question is whether or not that's where your resources want or need to go. Um, so I think that's maybe one of the trickiest parts of this question. Um, as a Canadian and as somebody who's very familiar with polar-esque regions in the world, um, I think One of the most striking, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the most striking um, places and places where the effects of our human activities are, you know, among the most uh, noticeable are the polar regions. Um, so we hear a lot now about the plight of the polar bear, for example. Um, that's really, um, again, this charismatic megafauna <laughs> might have a bit of a bias in, in our perspective on, on those kinds of things. And frankly, there aren't that many people up there. So you know, the direct impacts that people are having is a lot smaller than the indirect impacts we're having from our daily existence. Um, but that's definitely something that every single person should be thinking about so that we can, you know, try and stop or at least slow down what's going on up there. And, and same in Antarctica as well. Um, but I, 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 I really don't know how to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but well, my, my question is, yeah, it's completely criticizable. Sure. Yeah. But so what, okay, so what, how do you, uh, how did you tackle that one? I would, I would just give an example because, mm -hmm. of course, uh, I'm not able myself to answer this question, but perhaps the, the last uh, primary forests in Central Africa and, mm -hmm. and in Amazonia mm -hmm. as well for the places. Mm -hmm. um, and then just to raise awareness about this disappearing uh, species is um, the Asiatic cheetahs. Mm -hmm. uh, the last are in Iran and they are just... Uh, basically disappearing they are like, like critically endangered sure. um, the, it's it's very hard to estimate the population yeah they estimate but like uh, in the wild 50 left right so okay yep so let's get down <laughs> to the uh, the asiatic cheetah here okay yeah that's the time uh, but it's time also to hear about uh, other places and species Henoko Oura Bay at East, east, east seashore of Okinawa Island um, in Japan. Indonesia. The Northwestern Guards. 
and pangolins. Les forêts d'Afrique centrale et les, le braconnage, donc les espèces de faune telles que le gorille, les éléphants, sujet aujourd'hui, victimes de braconnage aujourd'hui. Pour Hawaii, je dirais préserver notre water, nos ressources de water, nos rainforests. Now the gorillas. Cats. First is the cats because, like in Azerbaijan, uh, we have only seven, uh, eight uh, leopards. We we try to protect them, uh, but due uh, to some uh, problems, uh, it's it's not so easy. Also, as I know, in in Russia, there's a problem with protection of Siberian tigers. Mm, so. For me, versus as a species, the cats. They all are, again, super hard to, to choose. Um, I can't pick one. Tiger. The ocean. Right here in Honolulu, Hawaii. Hmm. Well, that's kind of why I came here, because I don't actually know that much about it, and I'm just wanting to learn. I just pick up what's in the news pieces here and there. Um, but I feel like our water is so important, and we definitely need to preserve um, our coastline. Ghana, Atewa Forest, which provides water to about 5 million people, but it's also under threat from mining and um, illegal logging. Um, I know there are a lot of them are getting like extinct. Um, I know, but I don't really know about like much about other world or the parts of the world. However, in our uh, province, Jeju province, we are like uh, extinct species. I know there are like protected animals in Jeju. Um, there are, I don't know. All the natural landscape, not one over the other. Species thrive in different areas and different landscapes. You can't say one's more important than the other. You have to protect as much as you can and conserve as much as you can and protect the entire landscape. <laughs> Hawaii. Hawaii, of course. So this seem to be far distant uh, places and species to, to mm -hmm. preserve or to actually do something. It's a lot to think about, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But there are things that we can, everybody can do at a personnel or individual level right. that would make eventually a collective movement. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very curious to know Ooh. what's uh, your take on that. Yeah, I mean, I guess. So my question to the delegates was, uh, what is your sustainability tip? Something you personally do on a daily or routine basis mm -hmm. and that you think is uh, contributing or at least not having a negative impact on the environment. Mm -hmm. And I was very curious to ask this question because even in conservation congresses, of course, you can see sometimes discrepancy between sure. the, the what people are saying and, and with their action. Yeah. That's easy to see at parties, for example. <laughs> <laughs> when <laughs> or someone's other watching. Other kind of yeah. social events. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I always, I'm, I'm always very careful when I'm around you. <laughs> <laughs> What's going to end up on a podcast? Right, not after a few glasses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, and it, it reminds me of the last podcast we did because we talked about the air conditioning situation at the, right. <laughs> the primatology conference. And I was in the States and it was so cold. I mean, it's typical in North America that people have their thermostats set down so low in the summer when it, you know, it could be 30 plus uh, degrees that's centigrade uh, for the Americans. 
in Hawaii. It was a bit less cold than mm -hmm. uh, it was for this Congress in Chicago, but still, like, not all the rooms, but, but some rooms, like, were just freezing inside. So. Yeah. 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 It's, in a way, it's funny. It's the reverse, reverse in, in Japan. Say what you want uh, about the way people live here and the consumerism here. But one thing that's always a bit tough to adjust to is how... Um, your insulation is not a huge thing here. So people are very accustomed to kind of living with the seasons. And in a way, a lot of the architecture, a lot of the lifestyle is living with the seasons as well. And so that means that in the winter in your house, you're cold, uh, colder than you might be outside in the summer, you're hot. And so that I think it translates into one of the things that I would mention is, um, is just not overly regulating the temperature indoors, uh, for sure. So it's something that we I have to say that since we had small children, it's changed a little bit. We have to keep the, you know, the temperature a little <laughs> bit um, more hospitable for them. Um, but, you know, we try and definitely not to keep uh, the thermostats at any kind of crazy level. So compared to what it would have been at my, my sister's house or in Chicago, like 20 degrees or something, um, we're usually around 27, 28 or something. So it's livable uh, in the summer. And then, of course, in the winter, it would be you know something similar but uh, on the lower end of that sorry uh, room temperature so i mean you can do things like just put an extra sweater on if you're cold inside or take an extra layer off inside if you need to um uh what else i don't know we recently bought a new car which i don't drive to work as as, as often as i can avoid it uh, today it's raining a lot so i did have <laughs> my wife drop me off <laughs> but we carpooled in that sense uh, four of us um but the car happens to be diesel. And so these days that makes a difference. It's comparable to the modern hybrids as well in terms of um, efficiency and emissions and things like that. So um, so those are some things. And, and in, the other thing about Japan, which I like, it's a bit complicated to get used to, is the waste management system. Uh, so we have something like seven different ways of sorting uh, the garbages. And, and so you def we definitely try and be as diligent as possible to make sure that everything's going in the right. And then if it's reusable plastics or whatever, we'll reuse it. Um, but those kind of things, I, I, you know, very simple things. I can't claim to be, I, I do a podcast, which I hope has some <laughs> small influence on, but that's not a regular kind of everyday thing. So, so those are the kind of things that at least I hope show that it's on my mind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how much of a difference it makes. We'll see. Okay. Shut your lights off. <laughs> Good. But now you've got a lot more, so go ahead. Well, I don't know if I got a lot more, uh, on a daily basis at least. Um, I would say besides uh, brushing my teeth only once a year. Okay. <laughs> and for those of you listening, can't tell at all. <laughs> no, uh, completely irrelevant. And, and I'm nuts, by the way. Uh, but I think my sustainability tip would be to fight ignorance or to bring more knowledge of our consciousness. I think um, it's just that lots of people are liking this and they are just not conscious about their actions. Mm -hmm. They just don't think about it. Mm -hmm. And we'll hear about uh, one of the delegates uh, from India who would say, I think before I consume. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very relevant answer. So that's also what I'm doing mm -hmm. uh, for any resource or uh, energy taken. I'm not saying I'm perfect and mm -hmm. I'm not saying I'm, I'm using them all, but at least I'm, I'm thinking about it. Mm -hmm. 
when I make a choice and and I know what I'm doing. So in this sense, I'm trying to restrict. Yeah, I like it. That's whatever it. resources I'm using. Like. You present a system, which is a great answer. Whereas I just <laughs> went on this rambling thing about stupid little mini things. No, <laughs> but that's exactly this. So like heating system, uh, yeah, air conditioner, lights, plastic, water. Um, I don't know. You you always have the choice, and it's not because you are living in a society or in a country where some unsustainable things are the norm that you have to accept them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not because, <laughs> I don't know, maybe <laughs> you're going back to, <laughs> to this plastic bag issue, but because you are living in a country where they will give you a bag at the end of anything you are buying, yeah. which is already wrapped into plastic or whatever, and they put it directly into a plastic bag that you have to accept it. You always have to choose to say no. I don't need it. Or to bring your own you bag. And I remember going with you. You take too many plastic bags. So now it's the first thing I think of is like, well, I don't need it. I don't need that bag. No, just put it away. Put it yeah, away. I mean, I, but then you can apply this concept here to everything. Do I need it? No. Do I need to be freezing in this room in the middle of the summer? Uh, no. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. If you're sitting just... in a conference, the answer is yes, because there's not much you can do about it. But well, let's see. Um, yeah, let's hear about this uh, next conference I'm co-organizing in, in London in there 2017. Mm-hmm. No way there is going to be <laughs> <laughs> an aircon in there to get prepared. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's that's our take on this on this answer. And, and let's see yeah, what, what people out there uh, in Hawaii at the IUCN uh, Congress said. Uh, eating less meat. Recycling. Um division of the things you throw away and the the care of the materials you use public transportation so i try to do like less plastic like everybody else and no child but that's like too harsh isn't it so probably less breeding for human my work engages a lot of young kids, bringing them up to also appreciate nature and also to live with nature and also work for nature. So for me, if there's anything I want to do now, is to invest more in the youth. Hmm, that's a good question. Well, I try to use reuse things in my home. You know, if I have a plastic bag, I try to use it for my trash can and use it for different things before I throw it out so probably just things I buy I try to use at home a lot it's to develop uh, biodiversity based uh, enterprises at local level and build capacity éviter de laisser traîner les saletés toujours tout collecter et mettre dans un sachet et séparer uh, ce qui peut faire de la matière organique de uh, des plastiques I'm in, I'm as a, in, I'm environmentalist and from the other side I'm I'm lawyer so uh, for me uh, to get the sustainability, uh, environmental sustainability in, in Azerbaijan, uh, first of all, uh, our legislation should be improved. Also, I think that uh, in worldwide, uh, just uh, there is uh, there is need on improving or strengthening the uh, legislation on environmental sphere because it's quite important. I think that um, my career has been. Uh, I work for the National Outdoor Leadership School, and my whole premise of working in that job was providing the opportunity for young people to experience wilderness. 
and we would take them out into wilderness areas on expeditions for a month at a time. Primary sustainability tip would be, again, looking at a landscape conservation method, not simply one area or one area to focus on. When you're looking at restoration and conservation, it's taking the broad approach and a holistic approach towards conser uh, conservation. Is, uh, what is it called? Like you throw, like, can Recycle, yes. I think recycling is a big, something that I can do from my level because I'm not like policymakers or anything, but that's the, some, that, that is something that I can do as a citizen. And if we all do it, it'll create a lot of better, like positive results. My uh, involvement with fish ponds, with um, planting of some of our core trees on the big island, that's probably the biggest uh, thing that allows me to give back. Dewan eat at only seagrass, so uh, we protect seagrass bed uh, in seashore in Okinawa. And Henoko Ora Bay uh, have a very rich biodiversity, uh, not only Dewan, uh, perhaps uh, 5,060 marine species include uh, 200 uh, 230 uh, endangered species included. So uh, we protect uh, biodiversity uh, over a way, but now U.S. big marine base construction uh, uh, plan uh, now planning. So we want, we demand to Japanese government stop this plan. I do not waste anything. Every time I eat a vegetable, I plant the seed. I do biodiverse gardening via all the vegetables I get from the farmer's market. I rode my bicycle to every day of this convention. I think before I consume. And I think um, consumerism and that rising consumption pattern has really been what has driven the world to unsustainable lives. So hearing about all those uh, diverse sustainability tips is, I think, what makes the IUCN World Conservation Congress a great platform to mm -hmm. be able to interact with those people, but also to get new ideas uh, for conservation. It's such a small, um, small number of uh, people that you manage to get, large for us, but small <laughs> in terms of the 10,000 that were there. So I sure. just imagine um, how many ideas were floating around the place. But Yeah, a few, a few percentage only. But, and actually, I mean, this this led to the, the, the final question as well, which was, what's the best part of the IUCN World Conservation Congress? Mm -hmm. What was it for them? Mm -hmm. And fortunately, you get to lead into it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you were not there. You. I wasn't there, sorry. <laughs> the best part for me was, uh, as soon as this is up, hearing it, hearing it through the primate cast conservation voices. <laughs> For sure. I think the best part for me, as it was also my first uh, IUCN World Conservation Congress, not my first uh, conservation conference, mm -hmm. uh, for sure now. But so the first part of the Congress was dedicated to like roundtables, workshops mm -hmm. um, and keynotes uh, speech as well, uh, which was great and inspiring. But at, at the same time, uh, somehow a bit repetitive, I think. Some attendees need to be there to, to get inspired, and, mm -hmm. but at least it wasn't my take. So I, I really enjoyed also the second part of the Congress, which was the members assembly, right. and which gives you an idea of how uh, decision making at such level toward conservation 
actions right. and issues is taken. Mm-hmm. But this was very interesting to see how the the motions are proposed and how they are voted um, mm-hmm. and to see how the different countries and groups are proposing and elaborating on, on the proposal as well. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, it's it's not, it's probably cliche now to say, but uh, probably very true at that level that conservation is politics. And so for someone like you, who's very active and wants to continue in, and expand in your activism, um, can you see now after being at like an IUCN how you kind of make that transition or I mean, I guess the question is really about going from smaller scale activities, which are also, you know, just as important mm-hmm. um, to the, you know, the larger mm-hmm. scale kind mm-hmm. of international body level of conservation decision making level. Yeah. Yeah, that's to be honest, <laughs> that's highly diplomatic, highly political sure. as well. But I was still positively surprised mm-hmm. that you feel that the, the passion and the action is there in their worlds but in, in also in, mm-hmm. in what they are doing and even at such level you would find hopefully you would find such persons as well mm-hmm. which uh, gives me hope that it's possible but now it's time to hear about the passion of the people we interviewed it's the networking opportunities and you learn a lot from meeting the experts from those respective fields. I think it's so neat. There's so many people from different countries. That's what I love most about this. Um, it's just seeing all the the whole world comes together on one issue because it is our planet. So I love that. Personnellement, je pense que c'était de rencontrer beaucoup de personnes qui ont le même objectif et qui, bien sûr, prennent des chemins parfois différents. Et du coup, c'était très inspirant de pouvoir partager sur les différents sujets qui tournent autour de la conservation. The US Pavilion. I think this is a great session that brings together important thinkers, minds ideas all coming together to help protect and preserve and conserve our natural landscape. And in a forum such as this, it's a wonderful opportunity to hear different ideas, themes and approaches and all come together under one roof. The agreements, although the, the inspiration for young people to continue these this kind of uh, activities. I think it was just meeting a lot of people and getting to listen to other people's concerns and views, what's happening in their countries, you know, not just here since I'm from Hawaii, but getting to meet people and finding out what's important to them and what kind of issues they're dealing with wherever they come from. It's a rewarding feeling to see thousands of conservationists working in all different aspects of conservation. But, you know, like we actually aspire to the same goal. So it's also, it's really uh, not only fun, but you know, uh, eye-opening to see all of these different aspects of conservation. Like I come a lot to the business part of conservation, which I never touched, and learn a lot about it. The best part of the IUCN Congress was meeting uh, Olivia Malin and Claire Warmenball were the best part of the IUCN Congress. They both need to get promotions. You guys need to set up an IUCN Congress um, center in Hawaii, in Honolulu, and I would work for them for free. Words included in conservation happened because this Congress happened in Hawaii. Uh, this exhibition is quite important, quite interesting, because uh, how to say, uh, just uh, I am. I am from Azerbaijan, and Azerbaijan located 15,000 kilometers from there. So I, I am now here, and I, I saw uh, many many bushes, many 
from from other countries, from other cultures. For me, it's, it was very interesting. For example, to 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 get to the bus buses of the Koreans and or the Philippines and to some pavilions. Uh, the fact that it's here in Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, I was in a session that had to do with um, illegal trafficking, wildlife trafficking. And um, for me, it's, it's good to know that there is a global um, drive and action uh, to address the issue. And the fact that it, it came up here, it was also up in the motions, and to the extent that we are looking at trees, we are looking at fauna and all of that together, for me was, uh, was very significant for me. Because in my country, we are battling with the exploitation, illegal exploitation, and very large volumes from very fragile landscapes of um, rosewood species. It's a kind of tropical wood, hardwood, which is found in the most fragile parts of the country, but it's been exploited, driven by Asian markets. I would say like getting it, getting to know other um, different parts of the world, what they're doing and how they're doing, and just getting to know these um, these people and the organizations. Ce que j'ai beaucoup aimé, c'est les communications qui nous informent des tendances évolutives aussi bien des écosystèmes que des espèces, et puis des dispositions qui sont censées être prises par la communauté tant locale qu'internationale pour prévenir les risques et les limiter davantage. The children. So the uh, networking part here seems to be a big uh, component of yeah. the Congress, as we can expect. Sure. And yes, perhaps uh, one may think that uh, it's not easy to network with people when you have like about 10,000 <laughs> <laughs> people working, walking around you. Uh, but at least I had a good pretext to approach them, which was uh, the primate yeah, guest. Yeah, the podcast for sure. Um, and you were pretty active. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy to have my handy recorder with me because that really <laughs> gives me like a pretext, you know. So I'm here to talk to you, but that's for the primate guest. Yes. <laughs> Noble causes, of course. Sure. And in our very next uh, coming podcast, uh, I think in a, in a few days, it's almost ready. Uh, just after this IUCN World Conservation Congress, uh, just two weeks after, was mm -hmm. held, as we mentioned, the COP17 mm -hmm. in Johannesburg. And I wanted to follow up on this issue of the closure of ivory markets, mm -hmm. as we are here in Japan. And with a fellow <laughs> who is studying actually Asian elephants, we found out that there was this global march organized for elephants and rhinos that are <laughs> usually held every year. And this year, they, say they decided to launch it just the day before uh, the COP17 was taking place right. in Johannesburg. And it was held in 130 cities around the world. Mm -hmm. And we just found out that one was taking place in Tokyo. So we're in Kyoto and we say, Hop the Shinkansen. let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we are very curious to see who is organizing that. And yeah, so we look forward to all of these cool podcasts coming out in the next few weeks. Then, great, awesome. So I have one, I have one on the spot question for you, Cecile, uh, on the heels of IUCN twenty sixteen. Yeah, maybe I won't make it as dramatic as that. Okay, but just <laughs> can you give me uh, a, a sense of one thing? All right, one thing that's going to stick with you that you learned at IACN 2016 in Hawaii. Something that would stick with me is like, huh, so that's how it works. <laughs> mm -hmm. Cool. Well, how stuff works is a really good way to put it because I think um, 
we're always learning how stuff works for sure throughout all of our lives, but none, uh, never as apparent as when we're kids. And I think you, you wanted to say something about uh, the kids at this conference as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Education, conservation education mm -hmm. is, is like one of the most <laughs> important, uh, I think, hope for conservation right. as well. I remember also those giants like uh, E.O. Wilson, Jane Goodall yeah. and Sylvia talking and say, well, <laughs> they didn't phrase it like this, but <laughs> we are the dinosaurs of conservation. But <laughs> now there is this new generation that we'd have to to take care or to follow up with what we have been initiating. And, and that's something that apparently was uh, also important to the Congress or to the organizers as they opened their doors to students in Honolulu. So mm -hmm. I remember one day I was in the exhibit hall trying to do my podcast interviews and that was clearly not the day to do so <laughs> as there were like thousands of teenagers. <laughs> oh, kids, oh, teenagers, maybe not. I was thinking kids' voices in the background sounds quaint. But hopefully, yeah, they, they also learned uh, lots of things. So there there were those schools present, but also, of course, like uh, attenders and parents at the same time who uh, brought their kids to the conference. Mm -hmm. As we will hear in the last and next segment of this IUCN World Conservation Congress. So what's your name? Alaya. Where are you from? Um, Hawaii. What are you doing? Um, keeping the ocean steak. What's your favorite animal? Um, seahorse. What's your favorite place in the world? Um, California. What, what did you like the most here? Um, the ocean. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.